Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a Pardes Parsha podcast. We are up to Parshat Kitisa. We are moving through the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. And as all of you know, and as I always remind you, we record these in advance. So as we are speaking right now, unfortunately, the hostages are still in Aza. The war continues. Things are still challenging here. And of course, we hope and pray that by the time you're hearing this, things will be much, much better. So I am delighted to welcome Nechama, who I believe... You might be in the lead, Nechama. You might be in line for the fanciest swag this uh, podcast has to offer as the most times appearing other than me. I just love doing these podcasts, so it's a real pleasure to be back here. You hear that, everyone? I didn't have to pay her to say that. So here we are, Nechama, and we're at what a lot of people would say is a very, very difficult parsha because the Jewish people after witnessing the plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea and the eating of the man and water appearing miraculously and revelation at Sinai, they build a golden calf. And I think, of course, you know, it's interesting. I'm reminded that in the book, the Kuzari, the accusation, when the Kuzari, when the, the Haver, the rabbi is trying to say, look how great the Jewish people are, the king actually says, how can you say you guys are so great? You actually built a golden calf. So the idea that we build a golden calf now is not only shocking, but it almost feels like it undermines everything that came before. So what do you do with that, this terrible moment? So first and foremost, I'm always interested in how do we get to this moment? What are the circumstances that led the children of Israel into this spiral downward towards essentially violating the third commandment of the Ten Commandments that they heard God deliver at Sinai with all of the attendant sounds and sights, the thunder and the lightning and the magnificence or the awe of God's presence there. And I think perhaps already in that framing, we begin to understand the answer that often when you reach a pinnacle, when you reach a height, when you know you have this magnificent moment that also held a lot of terror and a lot of fear and a lot of expectation, in the next frame, you begin the slow move away from something that demands so much intensity. And so I often look at these stories as a microcosm for the relationships we have with one another in our lives as mirroring the relationship we have with God. And I think the Torah itself leads us to that in the sense that the imagery around God and B'nai Yisrael at Sinai is compared to a marriage and that God takes B'nai Yisrael in marriage. And we know there's tremendous intimacy in the marital relationship, but the potential for rupture and betrayal for a lot of small wrongs that happen on a daily basis, yet moments of incredible love and connection are embedded within an ongoing relationship. And so in some marriages, there are moments of terrible rupture and betrayal and the big question is, what happens in the moment after? Is there any way back? Well, before we get to the way back, though, I'd like to just explore a little bit how you imagine we got there in the first place. I hear what you're saying, that there are ups and downs. All relationships have ups and downs and challenges. But you still look at this. It still feels terribly extreme. As you said, they just heard God confirm his oneness to them directly. 
How do we then get in the next frame to idolatry? What are the, the proximate causes that you see in this text that suggest how the Jewish people got to where they got? So I think what happens there is Moshe disappears, and Moshe has really been the mediator between God and the children of Israel. In other words, it is true they have experienced the hand of God, the wrath of God against the Egyptians, the miraculous ability of God to save them at Yamsuf, at the Reed Sea. I mean, they've seen a lot of intense, powerful moments. But Moshe is really the mediator who brings God down in much more, I would say, bite-sized pieces. Moshe is the one who reflects to them or brings to them the word of God as it's going to be relevant in their daily lives and not just in extreme moments of plague, of splitting of the Red Sea, of Sinai. And then Moshe disappears and it leaves an incredible vacuum that the leader who has guided them, who himself has been framed as a representative of God, godlike, um, even though, of course, he's very much human, has disappeared And it seems like they very quickly are unable to sustain themselves spiritually in any way, and they revert back to previous models of worship. They take a calf, a golden calf, and we know calf worship is very, very prevalent in Egypt. And I want to suggest that they're not rejecting God. They might not even be rejecting the oneness of God, but they're looking for a physical representation of God that they can connect to. And in the absence of Moshe, who is a physical representation of God's word, right? There's someone they can see and touch and interact with. They go to a previous type of worship that they were familiar with in the many, many years in Egypt. And I think that speaks to how quickly do we revert back to patterns of behavior that we're supposed to push past, that we're supposed to be abandoning, that we know are bad for us. And yet in moments of incredible rupture, of pain, of abandonment, we revert back to exactly what we're not supposed to do. So I hear you saying you're framing it more, first of all, that it might be more of a replacement of Moshe than a replacement of God, if we're going to come back to the Kuzari again. But I also hear you saying it not to view it as a type of rebellion, but rather a sense of they don't know where to go or how to function, maybe a place of terrible fear. And I sometimes think that they wanted to break the deal, not because they didn't trust God. Maybe they didn't believe in themselves. Maybe they did not believe that they were actually capable of living up to the expectations that God has laid out for them. And they break the deal as sometimes people break relationships. They break them not out of anger or hatred, but out of fear, a sense that I can't live up to this. So maybe my only way out is to do the one thing that God insisted I do not do, because I don't feel up to having this relationship with God, precisely because of all the things that I saw. God is too great. I'm not great enough. I'm going to break it. I think fear is one way of reading the story. I think the idea of testing the limits of the relationship, how far can I go away from what I'm expected to do? How much can I break before there's an impossibility of repair? And I'm going to quote something that Panina Neubert 
has written, Rabbanit and, and Dr. Penina Neubert, uh, and she's written as follows. B'nai Yisrael could have returned to Gan Eden. Standing at Sinai opened a window of opportunity, and they could have renewed their days as of old. But just as Adam and Eve fell, so too B'nai Yisrael fell with the golden calf. Both stories are infuriating. So much bounty promised to mankind, so much power put into their hands, and yet they lose entire worlds in one hurried, impulsive moment. And I really do see parallels between the two stories. You feel Sinai, there's a moment of creation. Something new has been birthed into the world. There's so much opportunity. And like Adam in Eden, there's that moment of, you know, can I test this? Can I break exactly what I was told not to break and still somehow be in relationship, in this case, with God? And what we'll we'll talk about, perhaps, is what happens in the aftermath. But I think, were they set up to fail? Meaning it's something I ask with the Garden of Eden story by restricting them, only this fruit you can't eat. We all know that the first thing a child is going to do is going to test their parents and see what happens if I eat that one thing you tell me not to. Same thing here. God gives 10 commandments. What happens if we break one of the commandments? Is God still going to be with us? Is the relationship irreparable? So I think there's a testing of boundaries. There's definitely fear. I think it is impulsive. There is an emotional need, a vacuum that's created with Moshe's absence, as if when the parental figure disappears, the children decide to take advantage and see how much mischief they can get into. And of course, this mischief is quite a different kind than just watching too much TV or eating junk food. But even the language of they sit down to laugh, right? They build the calf and then there's a sense of joyousness, of giddiness, some say promiscuity, right? There's a sense of all boundaries have fallen off after they build this calf, perhaps that's what they're trying to do. What would happen if we break the boundaries? Will we still be able to regain the relationship? You know, it's funny, the way you're describing them, which I guess I have mixed feelings about, they're adolescents Mm -hmm. or children who test relationships as a way of seeing, checking their own independence, seeing how far the relationship will go. Will mommy and daddy still love me, even if I break the prized piece of art in the living room? And I hear all that, but I also can't help but introduce also, and maybe it's a part of our childishness that even adults have a need to back out because they don't want to be in that relationship. It's too much for them. Not because they don't feel love, but maybe they're even afraid of the obligation that would come with being loved by God and what they would then have to return to God. So, you know, in my mind, it's not only a rebellion or a test of authority, but maybe it, just to include the other idea there that they don't feel up to it. I think that when we read this story, we can read it at different levels of our own understanding of what happens as we mature and commit to relationships. We often ask ourselves, wait, how did that relationship go sour? Why is there estrangement between these adult children and their parents? Why did that marriage not work out? One of the things we're fascinated by is why relationships don't work, right? Why some relationships are irreparable. And so when I come to this story, it really will depend when I read it, where I'm at in my own relationships, perhaps, and trying to better understand this dynamic between God, Moshe, and the children of Israel. In terms of the trajectory of their maturity, I would suggest they are more like adolescents. They haven't yet come into 
an independent relationship with God. I think that's going to come pretty soon in the book of Shemot. But right now, remember, they were like children when they were taken out of Egypt. Everything was done for them. They were told exactly what to do, right? They were given very clear instructions. And then they end up at Sinai and suddenly everything shifts. No, now there are expectations. Now there are rules. Now there are very significant obligations. Nowhere are the children of Israel told they're going to Cherut, they're going to freedom. They're essentially expected to serve God. So they go from serving the Egyptians to serving God, but unlike slavery where they're being whipped, you know, for not obeying, here everything's a little bit different. They have to freely accept and fulfill And so I do think in some ways they're in that adolescent space where you begin to realize you're going to have to independently choose to follow the rules as opposed to the frame in which everything's done for you and the punishment is immediate. So given however we understand this fall, and I like the comparison to Gan Eden, right? This idea of missed opportunity, right? The Kabbalists talk about how this was the ultimate tikkun. Mashiach would have come if the Jewish people hadn't built the golden calf, right? It's this whole sense of this, we're at the height, and we just have to complete this one thing, and we fail, and things come crashing down again. So inevitably, the Parsha has to somehow include information about after things fall, and after things really fall apart, how do you then try to move forward and not just give up and quit? or leave, or be destroyed. What happens really in the aftermath of the sin is two things. First of all, Moshe really comes into his own and begins an incredible process of reconciliation where he begins to talk God down from the anger that could potentially destroy the children of Israel. We talked about changing behavior patterns. I want to say kiviyachal. I want to be careful here. I'm going to be talking about God as God is presented in the text. And I want to remember that with Noah and the flood, God gets so incensed at where humanity has gone that God essentially destroys humanity and says, okay, let's start again. And I feel a little bit after the golden calf not a little bit. The text says, God essentially says, why don't we just start over? I'll just destroy these people and we'll start again. And Moshe has to do a very delicate dance in convincing God or reminding God that that's really not a great idea. And what Moshe does is he reminds God of two things. Number one, the covenant with the forefathers and God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these are the progeny and the direct descendants. So God, don't you have some sort of commitment on your part to continue what you promised, despite their disobedience and their betrayal and so on? They are still direct descendants of those chosen patriarchs and matriarchs who went in your way. And number two, he says to God that, you know, the other nations are going to watch this unfold and it's not going to look good that you're this great God who just destroys the people he just took out of Egypt. And from there, Moshe continues the conversation of what reconciliation could look like. And he succeeds, of course. So how you begin the work of unraveling or, you know, a betrayal in a relationship or an incredible rupture, I think we learn from here is very, very delicate. And the key is thinking about 
the past in which things perhaps were more idyllic or more sure, right? Going back to a moment, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, right? That moment where there was a surety in the commitment God gave to take the children out of Israel and turn them into a nation. Let's go all the way back to there and begin the process from a moment where the commitment was clear on both parts, where the love was clear, where there was intimacy. We're not going to be able to erase the betrayal, the rupture, but at least first, let's remember why we're here and what we're doing in this relationship. And the story is going to continue from there. And there's a sense that relationships, strong relationships, always have to survive failures and difficulties. There's no such thing as, you know, the perfect idyllic relationship. So in a way, you know, God is almost agreeing to have a very human relationship with us and not just be the creator of the world, that the world doesn't go the way he wants, he starts over again, but rather in a relationship. God almost seems very human here, right? Very angry, but then able to say, you know what, you're right, I would rather keep this relationship than blow the whole thing up, even though that's going to mean I'm going to have to learn to accept the obvious limitations and flaws and failures of the people I'm in a relationship with. I'll just, I'll cite the May Shiloach, who says something I think very beautiful. God creates the first human, Adam, and then institutes the order of creation so that now human beings are going to procreate. And so every human being says the Talmud is a partnership between man, woman, you know, biologically, they create, and God, who is in there spiritually. And one of the things the Meishidoach says is that God implanted compassion in the heart of parents. So even though the child defies the will of his parents with full intention to anger them, they respond or they're meant to respond in compassion in spite of everything. And so, you know, the Meishidoach is suggesting that that parental-child relationship God learns from that. God instilled compassion in the parent when the child disobeys or angers uh, the parent. And then as a microcosm of God's relationship with the children of Israel, God is able to then channel that compassion by looking at the children of Israel, the B'nai Yisrael, as God's children. You know, it's funny, based on what you said, that originally God thought he was finding a marriage partner. And now he discovered he doesn't have a marriage partner, he has a child. Yes. And that requires a whole different set of skills and patience and understanding. And that's a beautiful image. I thought I was marrying a partner. It turns out I am the parent of this unruly, difficult child. And the anthropomorphic images of God as father, right, and the marriage images suggest that maybe the ideal is some form of partnership, but the reality is often it's more akin to a parent-child relationship. So when Moshe, as the story progresses, and I want to talk to you more about what are the other building blocks of redoing and, and the Mishkan now coming in, re-emerging in the story, when Moshe cites or learns the 13 what do they call them? The Yudgamal Midot, 13 characteristics of God? Is that is 13 that the attributes. Attributes right? of God, thank you, that, you know, compassion is so central there, right? That it's almost like we have to remind God of compassion in order to maintain the relationship. And what I said to you before we started taping, one of the things that came up for me when I think of the 13 attributes is that God teaches them to Moshe, and God gives Moshe a language, a secret tool, if you will, to use in moments when God is really angry at the children of Israel. And in relationship counseling, 
one of the things that can be helpful is for a parent or a spouse, it doesn't matter who, to say to the child, the spouse, the next time this happens, what language should I use? Because we all know that often in moments of terrible anger, we say terrible things. And what can be helpful is for people to learn language that reminds the other, hey, here we are again, remember A, B, and C. This is the language that you told me to use so that we don't escalate and get to a point of no return. And I love that God teaches Moshe this language that Moshe is next going to use in the sin of the spies, where we end up in a similar space where God is really, really angry and is ready to give up on the children of Israel. And Moshe slips in the Yud Gimel Midot, the 13 attributes, is like, oh yeah, remember you taught me that language? I'm using it here. And God then says, yes, I'll forgive them. I forgive them as you suggested. So what we're seeing here in the 13 attributes, first of all, that God is filled with compassion. But this is the language we use in the time of Elul and Tishrei over and over again, this idea that this is how we implore God to respond to us, knowing that we're so flawed and filled with moments of transgression. And based on what you're saying, we're really asking God to change the nature of the relationship. If you are expecting a partner or if you're a king expecting loyal subjects, we're asking you to remember, no, we get the right to deal with you as a parent. And as you said, parents have compassion, parents have forgiveness, parents are in it till the end no matter what, because it's an irreversible relationship. You'll always be your child's parent no matter what, and that we have that power to sort of say, no, God, I know that as king or as partner, you're going to break now. But we're asking, you know, think of us as your children and you as a parent, and then you won't break. I'm actually going to even shift and say, yes, I think that's a lovely framing and the way you articulated it reflects back all that we've been talking about. But I actually want to move to the side and say, I could even argue that you can use this idea in a spousal relationship or a kin subject relationship where there's real commitment to the relationship, moments of rupture. And then what language do I use so that you don't become, you know, this kind of anger from which there's no return because things are going to happen even in partnerships, even in a relationship with the king. How can I create a frame so that we can talk to one another, right? And that's so important, the ability to talk when you're this angry with me, when I've let you down as your partner. And so I think the Yudgamal Midot most obviously work if we think about the parent-child relationship, but I think it also works if we think about a spousal relationship because uh, we can get very angry at each other. And if you talk to relationship counselors, couples therapists, an affair is not the end of the marriage. In other words, the fact that there could be a terrible betrayal does not automatically mean the marriage is over. By the way, it often means they need help, like Moshe, the mediator, the facilitator, someone who gets in between the couple and says, "Okay, let's slow things down. Let's think of what there is in the relationship before we begin considering what there isn't or what happened. And so I think the Yud Gimel Midot work, regardless of what entry point we make into the relationship between God and the children of Israel. So let's get back to this question of the Mishkan that you alluded to earlier. The parallels of the tabernacle and the golden calf, the fact that the people donate to it, the fact that there's something that's being built, the fact that even Aaron, as the high priest, is going to be very involved in the tabernacle, is involved in the building of the golden calf, the gold that's used, and there's certainly a lot of gold in the Mishkan, and the fact that the Mishkan is going to be discussed in the two partio, like this whole episode of the golden calf is framed, right, by a discussion of the Mishkan, whether it's in Truman, Tetzava, the earlier partio, or Vayakel and 
coup day coming next. I sort of want to get your sense on what do you make of that structure? This like stopping and putting the golden calf in the middle. And what do you think it might be telling us about rebuilding? So, you know, I have to be honest, I always found much of the end of Exodus tedious, centered on the endless details of instruction for building the tabernacle and weaving the priest's garments. But wait a minute, the last six chapters repeat almost verbatim the same details we read prior to the incident of the golden calf. And so it was my great fortune to discover a beautiful reading of Exodus by Leon Cass in his book, Founding Nation, Reading Exodus. It transformed the book for me, most particularly the end. But one of the ideas he develops is that at God's initiative, the people become co-partners, right? That's something I've been talking about with God in the venture of building their nationhood with God at its center. And this is really palpable in the creation of the tabernacle, which God designs, but the people construct. And this building project really has within it tremendous intimacy. And after the story of the golden calf, the house is in peril, right? They're supposed to be building this tabernacle to house God's presence. They've betrayed God in the most visceral way, in the most fundamental way, by flagrantly worshiping another God or a physical manifestation of God. And in the aftermath, the repetition can be seen as an act of rebuilding and renewing the commitment to the relationship between God and Israel. Nothing will ever be as it was. But the story teaches us there can still be intimacy deepened by the acute awareness of fragility, remembered pain of betrayal, and a core strength that comes with resilience infused by the effort of forgiveness. And I really think that is what's happening in the last part of Exodus, in the aftermath. The golden calf ended up becoming a catalyst for tremendous growth and maturity. And these slaves, can, former slaves, can only really understand the consequence of free will by disobeying, in the same way Adam only understands the consequence of disobeying by eating the fruit. And so, you know, that episode culminated in the 13 attributes, and then forgiveness is God giving them the opportunity to build the tabernacle that is going to house God's presence. I'm just going to refer also to an idea in Avodah Zarah, in the Tractate Avodah Zarah, that Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi goes as far as to say, the Jewish people fashioned the Egal Azahav, the golden calf, only to give a claim to penitence. In other words, they did us all a favor, Tzvi. They took one for the team. They sinned in order to show people that no matter how low you go, there is a possibility of repentance, right? That we can come back. And I think that the fact that God allows us to build the tabernacle or really commands us again to build the tabernacle, it presents a model for what a relationship looks like before and after a terrible rupture. So like all relationships then, what you're telling us is that without forgiveness, relationships really can't continue because there's always going to be failures. There's always going to be people who, and again, it doesn't have to be extreme, but always where one side or both will move outside the lines of expectations or they won't fulfill the commitments that they made or they will disappoint the other in all sorts of ways. And without forgiveness, and I'm understanding here forgiveness as being like a compassionate understanding for what happened and also a willingness to trust that things can change and get better in the future. Without that, no relationship is possible, including our relationship with God. That's very powerful and very challenging, but I have to now turn towards something that you said about this, or at least applying this concept 
to where we are as the Jewish people today. Because some would argue before October 7th, society here was being torn apart. Relationships were breaking, were broken or in the process of breaking in a terrible, terrible way. We then have this other major disaster, the horrific, I'm going to call it a pogrom, of October 7th. And now I want to get your sense, where do you think we are now looking back on October 6th? Have we you know, repaired this rupture? Have we delayed the repair? Are we on our way? Where do you see us now? And what are the things that we have to do now to rebuild or to build our tabernacle? So I really wish I could come up with a snappy answer or a profound answer or something resembling some sort of direction of an answer. I cannot ignore the reality in which the nation was really being pulled apart, as you said, uh, before October 7th. And the fighting, the political fighting, the fighting over the judicial reform. And in one moment, everything changed. And I would say in the aftermath of the war, of the massacre that took place on October 7th, there was incredible unity. There really was. Not from the government. The government, in my opinion, still is not functioning as at the level it should be. But from among the people. And there really were, I would say, weeks, and I would even say months, where my hopefulness of a reconciliation from among the people was based on that collective coming together to mourn and to process and to respond, because so much needed to be responded to. Here we are, I think we're four months in, and I'm beginning to see signs of rupture again. Uh And I think that's because we don't have a Moshe. In other words, where is a leader or leaders that are going to take the steps to create the healing that will bring the people together? My hope is that if a leader doesn't emerge, and how can we have another Moshe? We were told there there is no one else like Moshe, but that the people will defy the odds, you know, what we expect when things start to unravel, and will recognize that the unity is stronger than the rupture. And I do think that is possible. I have tremendous faith in us as a people. I've seen in the last few months what we can do and who we can be and how we can hold one another. I have tremendous confidence in our children's generation. I'm waiting for them to grow up and take the reins of leadership. But I am concerned for the short term that it may get worse, not just because of the war, but because of the fracturing within the country around decision making and direction and so on before it gets better. My greatest fear, of course, is that the unity that was created by the shared suffering and shared threat only lasts as long as the acute awareness of shared suffering and shared threat. And then as soon as we're calm and quiet again, then those same things that tore us apart October 6th and backward are going to continue tearing us apart. So that's a terrifying thought. And I definitely agree the sense that the people are much better than their leaders. I've never had a stronger sense of that, that the average soldier that you meet is operating on a much higher spiritual, ethical level than the people who are supposed to be making the decisions and leading us. And that itself is very disturbing. And I guess, you know, the question is, 
on the one hand, you look at this parsha and it makes you believe that rebuilding is definitely possible. Relationships can be repaired. Uh, shared destiny and shared values can be created. On the other hand, of course, as we know going on from the book of Exodus, uh, there's no shortage of stories in the Tanakh of the Jewish people again and again uh, breaking their relationships with one another and with God. So I don't know what to make of that. Does that mean I should be optimistic that in the end we always pull through on some level? Or should I be pessimistic in that we can't seem to solve this problem no matter how many times we try? I'd like to end with something perhaps positive. Oh, good. Uh, Thank God. That the idea of the new moon, we know if we go back to a midrashic idea, the men sinned, the women didn't, right? First of all, as a woman, I love that, right? We're given the credit for withholding, refraining, not getting caught up in that moment of rupture that the women held back. Um, but one of the things that we're told in the midrash is that the women are rewarded like the new moon, right? This idea that we are given Rosh Chodesh, the new moon to observe, especially as a reward for this holding back. And I think the idea of the new moon, the idea of cycles, that we go through cycles, that there's always that moment of hitting the beginning of the month where the moon renews itself, at least to our eye, of course, is a powerful idea, idea that perhaps can take us into uh, the next uncertainty of, of the future, that there is renewal, that no matter how bad it gets and how ruptured we get, there is going to be a reset and a restart. And I think this Parsha teaches us that awareness of the past together with the present and the future. These encounters of ruptures, betrayals, and transgressions continuously hold the ongoing possibility for reconciliation and growth. I'll end with a quote from Zoe Klein from the Women's Torah Commentary. Every day a voice comes forth from Sinai and begs your answer. Would you be willing to spend your life with me? Ask God. And I think that question that she asks so beautifully can be translated into you know, into all of our relationships, into our waking up every day, looking for meaning in life, looking for some way of tikkun olam, something to bring to the world. I have to hope that like the moon cycles, that we too are going through a cycle and that we're going to emerge with the brightness and the light of where I think we can get to. Ah, good. I'm so glad you're way more positive than I am. I needed that. So just to sum up, my takeaways from you and this Parsha and your reading of the Parsha is that Ruptures and failures and conflict are an inevitable part of all relationships, including our relationship with God, as much as we would want them not to be, and as much as we think they're not going to come when we're in those first moments of tremendous joy and excitement and everything else, right? A mother holds a new baby. She's not going to imagine fighting with that kid over the car 16 years or 18 years down the road. But those things are going to happen. And our ability to forgive, to find compassion, and a willingness to rebuild, right? God has to be willing, and we have to be willing, and the willingness to keep working at it. And my sense of what you're saying is that you're applying that to the Jewish people today. We're committed to keep working at it. Yeah, I think we have to. I think also I'll add two more pieces, changing dynamics, right? Our ability to think outside of the box we normally find ourselves in and keeping open conversations, right? God continues to talk to Moshe, and Moshe talks to God. This Yud Gimel Midot, which is a language, the 13 attributes, which are language we're given to keep talking to God even when, when we feel distant. So I think keeping the conversation going between one another and perhaps changing some of the dynamics we find ourselves falling into in times of conflict together with all that you articulated. Okay, that's your homework assignment, everybody. Keep communicating. 
be open to change. You're not wedded to all of your previous habits. You, you can change. You can do tshuva in the truest sense of the word. You can become and grow and believe in optimism that there is a positive future. There's at least possible for us if we take those other pieces of advice. Nechama, thank you very, very much. Oh, you're welcome to. It was a pleasure, as always. Okay, so we'd like to wish all of you Shabbat Shalom and again our hearts, prayers for peace, for the return of the hostages, and just good things for the Jewish people and for the whole world. And hopefully by the time you're hearing this, as I said earlier, those things will already be with us, like the new moon, it'll appear and we'll see it and we'll feel positive. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.